that you've blown it with God? Have you ever felt that you are beyond forgiveness? That you can look back and you can remember joyfully days when you seemed on track, days when you seemed to be close with God, in the things of God, and yet you've made just too many wrong turns since then. You failed in obedience. Uh, you chose to willfully sin, and you find yourself in a situation just haunted by a sense of failure and loss. Well, I'm glad you came to church today. It's a good Sunday to come to church. Maybe we're here today, and uh, we're looking at our spiritual state here in post-Christian Scotland, and we look back in history, and we remember great days when churches were full, when the Bible was preached and believed in many, many churches in this city, where Christianity was honored in the marketplace. But really, those days are, are long gone. Maybe you can remember, more personally, the great days under Sidlow Baxter or Gerald Griffiths or Alan Redpath when they served as pastors of this church, where uh, it was bursting at the seams, where people queued up uh, to get a seat in this main meeting room. Uh, maybe you can... Maybe you've read of um, the revival that took place in 1905 where uh, over a period of a year, a thousand people professed faith in Christ where uh, the building was so full to busting that they knocked it down and they built this current building in 1911. So we're 100 years on from where this building was put up to accommodate all the people. And we can think back, we can look back on those days and think, well, we're not living in days like that. We're not seeing anything that compares to that. Something is lost. Did we take a wrong turn? Have we blown it with God as his church? This is just a day of small things, or of managing decline in a spiritual recession, perhaps. Well, if this is how we're tempted to think, I think we need to uh, see the relevance of this book of Zechariah to us. And I want us just to kind of give some historical background. So let's turn to God's Word. Let's turn to the book of Second Chronicles, and you'll find this on page 471. 471, if you're taking hold of the church Bibles here. I want us to see a similar context of discouragement and doubt for God's people of old. Uh, we're in the 6th century before Christ, Second Chronicles 36, and at the end of this book, which I think is the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the way they order the Hebrew Bible, this is how it finishes off. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, going to begin at verse 15, verse 15. The Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, 
old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. This is the lowest point in Old Testament history. 587 B.C. Uh, through, through the sin and rebellion uh, repeatedly over generations and generations, they lost every physical blessing that God had given them. They lost their nation as, as Babylon came in. Uh, they, they, they lost so many of the next generation. They lost their capital city. They lost their national wealth. They lost their temple, the symbol of God's presence amongst them. And all the great promises of God appeared to be finished. The kingdom of God revealed in the history of Israel just appeared to be destroyed. It was all over. Is that it? Was that it? Was there no hope? Well, look at verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, Isaiah the prophet in the 8th century, a little bit later, Ezekiel, uh, all books that we've got in our Old Testament, they spoke of the inevitable judgment upon God's people. They spoke of the scattering of God's people that would happen because of their repeated rejection of God's words. And yet, amazingly, they spoke of hope beyond that. They spoke of hope beyond this desolating experience of destruction and, 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 and the hope that they spoke of was incredible it was bigger than anything they'd ever experienced up to that point that God would bring about his kingdom and it would be bigger and better than the days of David and Solomon even, a new king a new temple a new and united people it would be as if they were resurrected from the dead uh, that's, remember that vision of Ezekiel they will be gathered back into Jerusalem under this new Davidic uh, king. And, and, and it would bring blessing to the whole world. The nations would come and be blessed under the rule of this king. The world would be transformed. I mean, the, the picture that the prophets spoke of was incredible. A new heavens, a new earth. And that was the promise of good news that was there to sustain a destroyed people, a remnant of believing people as they were scattered to Babylon and around. This was the only thing that they really had, this, this gospel of, of a future hope of what God was going to do, bringing in his kingdom. That's all they had to cling to to, to help them get through the destruction, the death, the loss of all that they had. And, and life as, as exiles in a pagan land. Look at verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so um, the Babylonian Empire 
got beaten and defeated by Cyrus, the king of Persia, who took it over. And in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with you, be with him, and let him go up. Now here is the awesome sovereignty of God. The heart and mind of the leader of the world superpower is directed to a new foreign policy. And why is that? Well, according to verse 22, well, it had to happen in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. You see, the most important thing is not the edicts of uh, superpowers, of nations. It is that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. God will always keep his promises. God has a big plan, and that plan will be fulfilled in the rising and the fall of empires and nations and kings come and go, politicians come and go, but God's word will be fulfilled. Here's the awesome sovereignty of God. And archaeology has dug up the, uh, the Cyrus Cylinder where this foreign policy is, is written. And if you'd love to see more of uh, how um, archaeology backs up so much of the history of the Bible, the uh, History and Theology Forum at the end of the month we have a visit from a, a Clive Anderson, not the guy on telly, a be, you know, much more edifying Clive Anderson. And he's going to give a presentation of, of, of a walk through the British Museum. We're going to transport you from the lounge here to the British Museum, like that, to the wonder of PowerPoint, and uh, show you the, the, the amazing stuff that we've managed to nick from all over the world that backs up the Bible. So more of that if you're interested in that coming at the end of the year. Let's go to Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. And how wonderful. If you're following through the McShane reading plan, uh, which we've, we were encouraging last week, there's a reading plan that we can all go through as a church. You'd be working through these chapters of Ezra. You'd be right in the right place for understanding Zechariah. Ezra 1, verse 5. So there was the proclamation from Cyrus. And this is what happened. We're on page 473 if you close your Bibles. Ezra 1.5 Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Turn over to chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Look at verse 8 of that chapter. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Je 
Josedek and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity Jerusalem began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. So they, they, they reconstituted the altar and then they started building the temple. Turn over to chapter 4. Verse 1, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Idu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. This is the context into which Haggai and Zechariah received and proclaimed God's words. Here were a people who'd received the good news of how God's kingdom was going to come and transform everything. And yet with some initial, despite some initial excitement, with uh, the King Cyrus offering this edict. Uh, A few people came back to the land. It was a small, struggling community of believers. And quite quickly, these huge, big dreams, what God would do, just seemed so far away. There they were, living uh, around hostile neighbors. They lived in this sub-province of the Persian Empire called the, the Land Beyond the River. Wait, that's really helpful, isn't it, that picture? Um, And uh, they lived in a little territory called Yehud. Uh, There would have been about no more than 50,000 people in this territory, a territory approximately the size from east to west as between here and Glasgow, and north to south, south to north, from from Edinburgh up to Dundee. So that's the territory that they're living in. But a small group of people living there. And they're facing economic challenges. This was an impoverished, trashed nation that they were trying to rebuild. Uh, Just picture the chaos in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, They lived amongst the rubble that reminded them of the golden times of the past that just seemed to mock them in comparison. They lived in the wreckage of what once had been a glorious thing. And it was a time of spiritual lethargy. It was a time of despondency. It was a time of of great discouragement. It was a day of small things. Kingdom of God? It was hard enough just to kind of 
get some food on the table. Hard enough just to work to provide. It was very hard for them to get excited about their small gains. Many spent more time just weeping over the spiritual legacy that had been lost. Now that's the context of Zechariah. And I don't know about you, but I think there's much contemporary resonance for us as we live in a post-Christian Scotland with many great buildings in our city empty where there is a sort of a hostility to the presence of Christianity in the public arena. I think this is a book of great relevance to us in our context here at Charlotte Chapel. So what is the message of Zechariah? Well, if I can try and encapsulate it, uh, he's speaking to this dispirited people who can only see a day of small things. God wanted them to see how big his coming kingdom would be. They're only seeing with their physical eyes. They're seeing small things, insignificant things. And, and, and God, through Zechariah, wants to give them spiritual glasses, as it were, to see how big God's kingdom is and how they are participating in this huge, great, big plan, this huge, great, big program of God, even through the seemingly insignificant acts of rebuilding a temple. See, the consequence of the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah is there in 5 verse 2. In Ezra 5 verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. It's a very practical book. This is a book that turns us to action. Now, we live in a different time in salvation history, don't we? We're not in need of building a temple, uh, but we're in the building business, aren't we? We're in the work of building up Christ's church. We're still engaged in the task of reaching out with the gospel, of building people up in the gospel, of sending people out with the gospel. And this book gives us spiritual glasses to look at what can appear to be very ordinary lives and the very ordinary mundaneness of church life and to help us to see that actually we're doing something of extraordinary significance. We are participating in uh, the, the, the kingdom of God that will come and transform everything. That's what we're doing. And this is a book to strengthen God's people. It's a book that calls us to live with gospel purpose of kingdom living now. So let's just do a quick flyby of Zechariah. Let's look at the structure and some of the content. And uh, we're going to just fly high over the book and then we're going to land the plane from in February. We're going to start working our way through it. So first of all, you've got to find it, haven't you? Zechariah. It's near the back of the Old Testament. Let's get a page number here. Zechariah. You'll find that on page 950 in the church Bibles. Page 950 in the church Bibles. Zechariah chapter 1. And uh, this, this book really is divided into two sections. And uh, we can see that because there's a, there's a time marker that begins each section. Look at Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. Page 950 in the, in the church Bible. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. In the eighth month, 
of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. Now that's somewhere between October, November, 520 BC. And then turn over to chapter 7 and verse 1. Very similar setup to tell us we're starting a new section. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. That is December the 7th, uh, 518 BC. So these two time markers just tell us the section of the book. So let's think about the first section. We've got an introduction. Uh, in, in the first six verses, and it is a call to repentance. Look at verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. If you feel that you've taken a wrong turn, If we think as a church we've taken a wrong turn, where do we begin? We have to begin by acknowledging our sin. To acknowledge the way that we've ignored God, the way that we've disobeyed His word, uh, and that this rightfully brings His judgments. And we need to turn from living godless lives back to Him. We need to repent. Repentance is always the first step of moving forward with God, whether that's beginning with God or going on with God. It is the step of repentance. And then from chapter 1, verse 7, we get a record of eight visions. Eight visions of Zechariah that he received in one night, one very eventful night on the 15th of February, 519 BC. What a night! Liam's been struggling with Will waking up in the middle of the night, and I would imagine Zechariah had a bit of a rough night. He couldn't really get to sleep that night. Eight visions. And he wants us to see what he saw. And he does that by repeatedly telling them, Behold. Now, unfortunately, the NIV completely refuses to translate this word. I don't know why the NIV has such a problem with it. Other translations like the ESV do go for it. Zechariah wants us to see what he saw. Behold, 1 verse 8, uh, four horsemen riding out to the different nations. Or in 1 verse 18, behold, craftsmen who will terrify the nations. What a strange image, craftsmen terrifying the nations. Or chapter 2 verse 1, behold, a quantity surveyor. I kid you not. Behold, a quantity, any quantity surveyors here this morning? Your job's in Scripture. Behold, a quantity surveyor. And he's going out with a measuring line to measure and survey Jerusalem. Jump on to chapter 5, verse 1. Really strange. Behold, a flying scroll. It's like an exocet missile destroying the house of a thief. An amazing vision. 5, verse 5. Behold, even stranger, a basket containing wickedness. That is flown to Babylon. Chapter 6, verse 1. Behold, 
Four chariots charging around the nations. Zechariah wants us to see what God had revealed to him. It appeared as if they were an insignificant people on the stage of world history, and yet God wants them to know that he is at work in their lives and in their world, and they are central to what God is doing in the world. If they would just give themselves to rebuilding the temple, they would be participating in the great drama of salvation history. Now, to human eyes, it would look puny and insignificant, but the truth is it has worldwide and eternal significance. Look at chapter 1, verse uh, 16, to give you a flavor of this. 1.16. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. That's amazing. Ezekiel saw a vision of God leaving the temple, leaving the nation. And God says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Or look at chapter 2, verse 10. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And in the middle of these eight visions, there are visions about two particular men. In chapter 3, Joshua the high priest, and in chapter 4, Zerubbabel the governor. A great name for a son if you're having one this year, Zerubbabel. We haven't had many in the past year. And these two men, these were, they were leaders of the returned exiles. And Zechariah wants to see that these men are in some way symbolic of a greater servant that is coming, the Messiah. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Now, Isaiah and Jeremiah have used this term, the branch, as a term for this king, the Messiah, the one who would come and bring in God's eternal kingdom. And look at the end of this first section, chapter 6 and verse 9, we get a coronation scene. It, it, it's like an enacted prophecy of the future. And a gold, uh, verse 11, take the silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua. Now that's a very surprising thing to do. Normally you would uh, put it on the, uh, the head of the Davidic king. Uh, the, uh, the 
Zerubbabel was the closest, I guess, as the governor. But no, he's putting it on the head of the priest. This coming Messiah King will also be a high priest. And he's going to be the one who's going to build the true temple. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. They're they're building a physical temple. But there's a a king who's going to be a high priest who's really going to build the great temple that Ezekiel prophesied about. And you see, the reason that this book has such relevance for us today is because the central character is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a book written sort of 500 years before the coming of Christ. And yet, as, as particularly as you head into the second half of chapter 7 to 14, where you get so much more details about this coming king, it, it is extraordinary to see, in a sense, in outline form, in a sort of a hazy, dreamlike form, so much detail given about this king that would come. We, we've carefully timed this series so that on Palm Sunday, guess where we're going to be? Guess where we're going to be? Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, this king will come to Jerusalem, a humble king, riding on a donkey. 9 verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous, a righteous king, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In chapters 10 to 11, uh, he'll be so different to the false shepherds who, will, who exploit and scatter the sheep. In chapter 12, we have this incredible image of God speaking of a day when uh, they will look on him. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, God says, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. An extraordinary prophecy. How could that come about? God being pierced like a firstborn son could read on verse 13 that on that day 13 verse 1 on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity on that day and we're going to read on and just see how delightfully King Jesus is painted out 500 years before he came This is what Zechariah looked forward to. And this is what we've seen fulfilled in history. Jesus is the Christ. Again, if you're doing the McShane reading plan, you'll have read today uh, in Acts how the apostle, uh, how how Saul, when he got uh, met by Jesus on the Damascus Road and uh, got brought to uh, meet other Christians, uh, set about going into the synagogues, showing them that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he went to the Old Testament and showed them all the things, the ways that it promised what the Messiah King would be and say, look, that fits with Jesus. 
you've got to believe you spend a lot of time in Zechariah, don't you think? There's so much here that you could use as data to back up this claim that Jesus is that long-promised king. The king who came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was near and that people should repent and believe the good news because he was the king. We're coming to the table in a moment to remember that it was his death that cleanses sinners. The fountain that was opened up on the day for cleansing was a fountain of his own blood upon the cross to make us right with God. And his resurrection proclaims that he is the eternal king. He's defeated death. He's the king that will never die. And he's the one who is worthy of our submission and our obedience. What's your life about? What are you living for? Is it just about making enough money to get a nice pension? Get a nice little house? Maybe get a nice little second house somewhere? The sun shines? Is that it? I, 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 I loved the Ashes win. I really did. Having spent time in Australia, I know how much it's hurting them. Um, and, uh, and yet, I couldn't, I couldn't fail to notice how pathetic it was as the, as the sports commentators stuck the microphone in their face and say, it doesn't get better than this, does it, mate? Really? It doesn't get better than this? Jumping up and down with 11 men in the middle of a green pitch? The Barmy Army singing your praises. It doesn't get better than this. My friends, if that's all we're living for, our life is too small. Come and see what Zechariah saw. The bigness of what God is doing in building an everlasting kingdom. Of those who will submit to this king, to King Jesus. Those who will come and receive his cleansing for their sin. He'll, he'll take our, our filthy lives and he'll give us brand new garments of righteousness. And he'll bring us into his family and we can be part of this eternal kingdom. My friends, are you living in the light of this big picture of what God is doing? This really is where it's at. And beyond that first coming of Jesus, we've got this final chapter of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, where it looks to a further coming day. 14.1, a day of the Lord is coming. This is a day beyond that momentous day of cleansing and so forth. Before this day that is spoken of in chapter 14, it'll be a time where the people of God will look besieged. They will know great suffering and hardship. Again, they will look like a defeated people. But a day is coming when God himself will come to overthrow all his enemies. Look at 14 verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Now, obviously, this is, this is uh, poetic language. This is um, um, apocalyptic language. But on that day, 
which is still future for us, I believe. A new heavens and a new earth will begin. Look at verse 6. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. And here's the key verse in Zechariah. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. This is what we must see. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. And God's kingdom will be fully established. And the call to God's people today is to live in the light of that day. Are you living in the light of that day? Are we living in the light of that day? This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name, the only name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the kingdom of God has already broken into this world. It's been realized in the first coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And yet we are waiting the fullness of it on his return on that day when his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the challenge to us to live in the light of such awesome realities. And if we're not living like that, my friends, can I urge you to read through Zechariah in the coming weeks? And let's ask God to change our hearts and lives to be able to see what Zechariah saw. To see that this small, insignificant church in the light of this big, awesome reality of the kingdom of God. And how are God's people sustained and strengthened in in difficult times, in discouraging times? How are God's people energized to live constructively in the light of of the coming kingdom in all its fullness? How can we live with, with lives of gospel purpose? How can we live with perseverance? I've got a verse for you. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Do you remember the apostles? They were just beaten up. They came back, told the church what went on. Persecution was building in Jerusalem. And they gathered to do what? To pray. They gathered to pray. And again, these, uh, these men who'd already experienced Pentecost received a fresh empowering of the Spirit. The room shook and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Believers need to be filled with the Spirit of God afresh in order to do the work of God. Can I encourage you to participate in the week of prayer? 
Um, next slide, please. At 7.15 till 8, 12.30 for an hour, come for as long as you can. Feel free to go when you have to go. Let's seek God's grace and fresh empowering to be his people here in Edinburgh. Let's pray.